What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both through their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the show and you want an easy way to support it, please leave a review on iTunes. It's probably the best way to help others find the show, and I really appreciate it. In today's episode, I sat down with longtime indie hacker Drew Riley. Drew is a creator behind Trends.VC, a newsletter where he shares the latest trends in tech, business, and startups. It's super popular. I'm subscribed along with many others, and he's doing tens of thousands of dollars a month in revenue from his newsletter. But it took Drew quite a while to get here. In fact, it took him multiple years after quitting his job to get to the point where he started this email newsletter, and many months after that to get to the point where he was actually charging money and growing his subscription base. So I think there's a lot to learn from Drew about perseverance and just figuring out the right idea to work on. Enjoy the episode. You made one of the more interesting posts that I've seen on Indie Hackers. I think in part because your story resonated with me. And it Mm -hmm. was when you were talking about how you had quit your job in 2017. And you're very transparent. You said you'd worked for three years. You saved up 250K, which is a ridiculous amount of money. And you just lived for three years off your savings, building projects, trying to be an Indie Hacker, and not making literally a single dime in that entire time until I think May of this year with Trends.VC. What was that like working for so many years and not finding any success? I wasn't working the whole time. Like I was traveling. I picked up jujitsu, did some improv. You said something in your comment on that post that really resonated. And I think about it at least once a week about how time, I guess our urgency, like matches the amount of time that we have. And as I was running out of money, I got really serious. I was learning and like building, but not with a sense of urgency until I'm like, okay, I can see the end of the tunnel and it's back to working for the man if I don't figure something out. Yeah. So it was a really short post that didn't like leave room for a lot of nuance. So I wasn't like working, trying to make something happen the whole time. I had projects here and there, but like towards the end of 2019, up until trends started, there were probably like six projects back to back, just trying to build the airplane as I was falling down. Yeah. On your personal website, you've got, I think, 12 different projects that you've worked on over the years. And there's a huge variety. Some of them are hackathons. Some of them are SaaS products that you built. More recently, there's a lot of like newsletters and content businesses. But it's pretty clear you've been, you've been trying a lot of stuff. And I think this idea that work expands to fill the time allotted... It's true on so many levels. It's true individually yep. with like a particular task that you've been assigned or you're trying to do for work. You know, if you think it's going to take a day, but you give yourself a week, it'll take a week. But I think it's also true with like <laughs> life goals. You know, if you're like, I want to be an indie hacker and make mm-hmm. a lot of money, you know, or be my own boss, and you've got three years of runway, or in my case, I had like a year of runway. Like, it's probably going to take you that long to get serious. And what I did was I spent like yep. also six months just like learning and traveling and doing fun stuff. And then eventually it was like, oh shit, like mm-hmm. I don't have very much runway left. What was it that convinced you to, to basically, you know, stop just doing improv and jujitsu and start working on projects <laughs> that you thought could make money? It was just running out of money and time. It was really time. Like that's how I see money in a lot of ways. I just look at it in terms of like, freedom and time. Like, what does it buy me? And I was like selling my uh, second place. And with that money, I would have been good for maybe like a year, two years max. And I I didn't want to like run it up until the last minute. So it's just like, it would be nice if I could do like a smooth transition. That's not really hectic. And that's what ended up happening with Trends VC, where like I still have a good amount in savings, but like I could pull from that or pull from Trends VC, which is a nice position to be in. So tell us about Trends VC, specifically, you know, how much money is it making? When did you start it and what is it? Yeah, so last month, it made just shy of uh, $24,000 uh, for August. All of it isn't recurring, but a lot of it is from like annual subscriptions. So Trends VC is a uh, series of weekly reports on new markets and ideas. And it follows like a format of like problem, solution, players, predictions, opportunities. Uh, there's a hater section that a lot of people like and more research. And it just helps people find like emerging opportunities. Yeah, I love the hater section. And we'll get into like the whole <laughs> format of how you structure this, this sort of weekly report, but it goes out over email. Uh, you posted a ton of them on Indie Hackers. That's how I first got turned mm-hmm. on to them. I think you started with number four and number five. Uh, and every week you release a new one and post it on Indie Hackers and tons of people would read and comment. And I think what's remarkable, as you said, you know, in August, you did $24,000 in revenue. In March, I think you had done $0 in revenue. In April, I think you had done $0 in revenue. You've just been able to grow this thing 
at like a rocket ship pace. What do you think is the difference between all the other things you've worked on before Trends, those other 11 projects, and Trends itself that allowed it to do so well? Yeah, I think it's like a sweet spot of what I enjoy, what I'm good at, and like what other people, like what they need or what they like. Someone asked me recently, like, oh, like, you know, how did you find your voice? And I told them, like, I think I always had this voice, but I could like switch and work on another project. And if it just didn't fit what the market needed, it wouldn't work out. Like I can take the same voice that I have and try to solve a problem that other, you know, if they don't, if it doesn't exist, it's not just going to magically work. So it was like the fitting of all three of those together. Yeah, it's the elusive product market founder fit where it doesn't really matter if you're good at something, if no one else cares about that thing, like you can just do what you, you want all day. I think, who was it? I think it was Naval we tweeted about art being something that you do for yourself and business being something that you do for others. And like the mm-hmm. ultimate artist is the only person who really cares what they're doing and it doesn't matter, it's fulfilling for them. But like that's a recipe for disaster in business because no one's going to pay you for something just because you get off on doing it. Like they need to benefit. They need to have value somehow. Right, yep. So let's go back to the beginning then because I want to go over some of the history of these projects that you've worked on. Maybe the best place to start is why did you quit your job? I mean, obviously, if you were able to save up 250 k you're doing really well for yourself. You're making a lot of money. You're a software engineer. Why leave that behind and decide to take this little mini retirement that you did? I feel like I was always planning for my escape, whether it was like the first job. I'm located in Atlanta, like my first job out of college in Atlanta or the last one, which I quit in 2017. I was always like saving money, preparing for an escape. And it wasn't a smooth transition between each. Like I would always like quit, take a few months off. It just happens that like the last time this happened, it was three years and not a few months. And with the last job, it was it was like super comfortable. The work was interesting. Loved my coworkers. Um, it was just like almost too comfortable. Like I was super specialized. And I'm just like, man, like I miss design a little bit. I miss, you know, thinking about marketing. I miss all of these other angles. And it was just like super comfortable. And I feel like, you know, if I would have stayed, I could have like stayed and probably been okay for like life in like four or five years. Not like a super rich life, but like my burn rate was low. Like I could have made it happen. But yeah, I feel like if I would have stayed for, you know, three, four, five more years, I may have never left. And I had a lot of like, you know, lunches with like people as I was leaving. And they were just like, man, like I admire what you're doing. Like I planned to do that three or four years ago and they just never made the jump. And now they feel stuck, you know? It's pretty crazy how if you take any sort of leap in your life, and you tell others that you're doing it, how many people say, oh, I wish I could do that? You know, if you decide <laughs> yeah. you want to leave your job, a lot of coworkers will be like, well, you're so brave. That's so cool. It's so inspiring. Or even me, I just left on this road trip. And I just like mm-hmm. informed people who I thought should know just because you know they're my friends and they should know where I am. And mm-hmm. the percentage of people who are like, oh, I wish I could just drop everything and leave. It's this weird dream that so many people have and then very few people actually take. What is it about you that made you so comfortable leaving the comfortable life? It probably goes back to like my first job in Atlanta. And I felt like coming out of college, if someone would have given me a shot in like a software development role, that's all I needed. Like I would have been able to like, this is now the new bottom, like this is the base and I could always fall back on that base. So I felt like that skill set just gave me optionality. Like I know I could get back to this point, if not better. And that was freeing in a way. Yeah, it's a good thing about being a software engineer. It's like, there's always jobs. Worst case scenario, (laughs) like you're not going to be on the street. Like you're just going to go back to being a software engineer is a pretty cushion. Right, right. I would, I would love to just paint the picture. I'm super courageous, but that was it. It felt like hedged in a way, you know? Yeah. Well, what was the first thing that you worked on? You know, you said you spent a lot of time having fun. What was the very first project where you were like, you know what, I'm going to actually try to start building something on my own? Oh, man. I won't even be able to remember like the very first because at first it was just like I miss building and I'm just sort of building for fun where I will work on things that I wouldn't have worked on towards the end of, you know, 2019 when it's crunch time. And I don't remember that early back. I remember what I put a lot of work into. And there was something uh, right before Trends VC, which was called SAS Report. And it would do like competitive analysis for SaaS companies. So if someone changed their pricing page and it was a competitor, like you'll get an alert. It sort of bleeds into, I'm not sure if we'll talk about it, but um, one of those like parts that I just feel like it's something that I enjoy doing here where uh, I sort of ran out of steam, even though I saw potential pivots. I just like ran out of steam on that project. Maybe it could have worked. Maybe it was doomed to fail. I don't know. But it was like SAS report. And it just took a lot out of me to the point where switching to, at one point, Trends VC and SAS report were running at the same time. And I picked up Trends VC because it felt like something I could do forever in a way. Um, Like there's no end game. It's sort of an infinite game. And the previous project just was not that. I felt like I would be comfortable selling this, you know, 
there was just an end in mind working on that. Whereas there's really no end in mind with uh, trans VC. Yeah. You got to do something that you enjoy working on, but it's not always mm-hmm. easy to like predict what you're going to enjoy working on until you start doing it. And you're like, Oh, this is a slog. Like, I hate this. <laughs> and right. I think one of the most uh, common things for people like you and me, like we're both software engineers. Usually when we decide to start projects, we think about, okay, what can I code? I like coding. Coding is fun. Like you said, like there's some muscles you wanted to flex your design muscles and all sorts of other things. And you actually did work on some coding projects on your website. Like you had a, uh, a Chrome extension that you build and you had like some sort of Twitter sentiment analysis thing to tell businesses like who's tweeting about them and what they're saying. And you even had like a Ruby CLI thing for installing Ruby gems. And all of that seemed to be like your older projects, which for me is kind mm-hmm. of the same. Like all of my older stuff was all like pure code, me just coding stuff and hoping like, you know, I'm going to put this on autopilot up on AWS or something and people are going to sign up for it and it's just going to pay the bills <laughs> every month and I don't have to write. What caused you to switch from doing all of those code related projects to sort of the newer stuff where you're doing trends.vc and you had this like SaaS report and you've done a bunch of other newsletters and stuff too where it's not code. It's you sitting down every day researching and, and writing stuff. Yeah, I don't think it was very strategic. It was just about like, I went through this like identity shift towards the end of like 2019 or early 2020 of you sort of just hit on it. Like even picking up SaaS report, I'm like, oh, this is technically interesting solving this problem. And I had to put that down because I feel like as as engineers, like we think, you know, like this is cool if it's, you know, complex or all of this. It's just like, no, like solve a problem. They don't care about like how the pipes work or how, you know, the code looks. Um, And there was this identity shift. I'll say within the past year, year and a half, where it's just like I had to put a founder hat on and take a developer hat off in a way. So I think that's what opened me up to exploring content, where it's just like I'm just looking for valuable problems to solve, you know? Yeah. No one cares what goes into your project. No one cares mm-hmm. like how you're building it or what new technology you're going to use. And like you might care and be super excited about that. <laughs> right. But if you're a founder and you're just thinking about every day what you're super excited about, then again, I think that's like that's art. And art's good. Don't get me wrong. Like everyone should probably mm-hmm. have something artistic in their life. But like if you've got to pay the bills, you probably should be focusing on what other people want, which is not an easy mindset shift to have. Yeah, yeah. I will say with Trends VC, it's sort of like it solves my own problem in a way of these are things that I was curious about. And I noticed that like I'm probably one of those people where I need to solve my own problem and it gives me like a deeper level of empathy versus some people, they're just like pure capitalists and it's just like, you know, golden teddy bears are selling and they'll just go out and start hawking golden teddy bears. I don't know. Like I'm just, there has to be some type of emotional connection for me. Yeah, what what would you say motivates you? I mean, you're not a pure capitalist. You need to be kind of interested. But if you look out a few years, like where do you want to be? What do you think is going to keep you going with trends? Yeah, I think like independence motivates me a lot. Um, just like control of my time. And that probably links back to why I made the jump to from quitting the job. Yeah, just like independence, controlling my time, a sense of purpose. That's probably what it boils down to. I want to talk a little bit about this transition from from mm-hmm. code to basically these newsletter products. Let's say I could go back in time to like late 2019. That was when mm-hmm. you kind of made that transition. You started writing this book. What would you say are the lessons that you had learned by that point? Like if I had if I had interviewed you then and said, "What have you learned about building companies, coming up with ideas, and being an indie hacker?" And what were those lessons? I sort of dumped all of those lessons in something called um, 100 Rules to Live By. There was like a business section. So it's like I have a really aggressive like garbage collection. I try not to like keep too much stuff in my head. But I remember like what I was learning at that time. At that time, I was making the transition and it was still tough from like engineer to founder. For those three years, like I learned a lot about like myself and how I work best and how to get myself to do things. Because it's one thing when like, your boss or your coworkers are like depending on you, but now everything is on you. No one will like care if you didn't, you know, get your commitments done for that day. And I felt like this each time I quit my job of like, I have months or, you know, eventually years to just, I just got to know myself better and like how I best work. Um, And I think that helped a lot. And it almost, I would love if like someone had an idea about how to fast forward that process. But for me, it was just going through and having all of this time to myself to just figure out how I work best. So you spend years learning how you work best. Eventually, <laughs> your bank account's running, I can only imagine, much lower than it was when you first took off work. And you mm-hmm. start doing things that are more focused on what customers want. You start writing and providing data. And, and you're trying to balance, okay, what do I like doing? And what do actually other people care about? What resonates with them? So your product, I think you launched in November or September of last year, B2B SaaS Marketing Playbook. That was like mm-hmm. the first thing that I saw you posting a ton about on any hackers, you made a product page, you're posting these updates. And I think the idea was that 
you were going to write this book and you were going to publish one chapter at a time of the book. Like every mm-hmm. week or every month, you'd publish another chapter and you'd get people to subscribe to a mailing list and actually, I guess, read your book. What was the idea behind that? Like, why did you come up with that idea? Did you have a business model in mind? And how did you get it off the ground? Yeah, I think how I came up with the idea is I just, I feel like I have like this different way of seeing the world or I like see certain aspects of things that other people may not necessarily see. And that was just like one way to like get it out of my system. Didn't have a business model around it. One mistake I made with that is that um, like that project had like a definite end, right? At some point, you're going to run out of chapters and the book is going to be complete. And then what? It doesn't continue to compound past that point. And I didn't really like appreciate that until being halfway through. But yeah, it was probably just trying to get something out of my system of like, you know, like, is everyone seeing this? And if you look at it, there's just like, you know, companies It's almost like the training ground for Trends VC in terms of like comparative analysis and like lateral thinking where I'm looking at like, you know, comparing, you know, superhuman to like, you know, it has elements of Tesla here and like, you know, all of these like seemingly unconnected things, connecting them and putting them together. Yeah. Some of your posts were talking about getting subscribers. And you're so excited in the very beginning, like your first update, you're like, I've already got a, a subscriber. Right? I've got you know, 12 <laughs> subscribers. So I'm getting like two or three per day. And then the very last update that you posted about the marketing playbook is like, growth is slowed. <laughs> it's kind of flatlined. <laughs> I'm used to getting more people. And I think at that point, you had, you had published like four or five chapters. But on your website, you mm-hmm. eventually got to all 10. So it's like you finished mm-hmm. the book and you're just like done with it. And then you had yeah. another post where you launched another thing. What made you decide that you wanted to keep doing newsletters and doing content, even though your first sort of marketing playbook slowed to a crawl and wasn't something that you were interested in doing? Yeah, I think it just came back to like problems of thinking about like problems being solved where I didn't see a line between like code, media, or if we add some other categories, just like like what what problem do like I care enough about that I think I can stick with for a while? And if it doesn't involve code, cool. If it does, cool. But just like really prioritizing like the problem and what I think I can stick with as opposed to like the medium or the skill set required. Well, you started all these different newsletters that I guess you thought you could stick with. You had StrongStack, SaaS Report, and eventually Trends.VC. Did you have a business model in mind for Trends when you started it? No. It was interesting because it was like the, it was a hard decision because like I always have a list of um, – like ideas in mind. Like I keep a journal and I always have a list of ideas. And this was the one thing I didn't know, like how it would make money. But I was just coming off of SAS report, which was uh, previously strong stack. And it's just like, I had this idea for how it would make money. And I just ran out of steam in terms of like pivots and working on the problem. So I'm just like, let's just try something different. Yes, time is running out, but like, let's just try something different. I remember the moment where I'm just like, okay, I'm going to try the like paid newsletter route to monetize this. But leading up to that point, I'm like, you know, maybe this is just a networking tool to like meet people and then eventually like invest or, you know, build a fund or something like that. But it was, I think, report number 11 with the paid newsletter. And I was just like writing about so many examples back to back to back of people monetizing this. And I feel like the more examples you have, the easier it is to do something. And it was just like, that became my reality for a week. Mm. I'm just surrounded by all of these stories. And it's just like, I can do this, you know? So give me a, a sense of what your life was like back then. Because a lot of people are in this phase where maybe they quit their jobs or they're working on the side of their job. And they're mm-hmm. trying to like figure out what idea is worth working on. And they're also like validating those ideas and trying them out and quitting. What was your day-to-day like? Were you working on multiple things at the same time? Were you doing a lot of research for new ideas? Like, what did your life look like? At the time, I was just looking for a way to blow off steam for SAS report of like, it was just a, a struggle. I wasn't getting a lot of traction. Everybody had ideas about what you could do with it, but it just seemed like it really like no one would be pissed off if it didn't exist. So I was working on that and I just needed a way to like release steam. This was something that, yeah, I didn't know how like I would make money doing it, but I like lost track of time working on it. And that was like Trends VC. So both were running at the same time. And I would go from, you know, working on SAS report, struggling, being in a terrible mood to Trends VC sort of like being my plate. Like it just felt like play to me. I remember uh, I had a conversation one night with uh, KP, who we talked about in the pre-interview. And I was just like, man, like I'm just I'm going through like I have this route that I think I think this thing can make money. I think it can work. I don't know how this is going to work, but I enjoy this. And eventually I just, you know, actually it was after we met in Mexico City that on the flight back, I was just like, I'm just going to cut it off, cut, stop doing SAS report and try to figure this thing out. So this is like newsletter number four or five. 
that you're trying <laughs> in like a six month period. I mean, there's some that we didn't even cover. Uh, yeah. Twitter accounts for them. I think it was like a product mm-hmm. update, product examples. And you're doing uh, research, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. you're, you did so many different things. And it's fascinating to me because it's like you just decided to just go hard on this content thing. And what's cool about it is you just got so much done. I mean, I think most people would like try one content thing and then it fails and they quit. Or maybe they get two done in like six months. You had like five or six of them. And they're all like kind of similar and you're iterating. How did you get so much work done? You know, were you working 12 hours a day? Do you have like some sort of crazy productivity habits and tricks? Like how did you, how were you so prolific? Yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm that productive, like being, I guess me, but I do, um, like I use an app called Habit List and um, I've used it for, I don't know how long, but um, I just try to pay a lot of attention to like how I design my life, whether it's around meditation or reading or how many hours I um, put into work. And I just try to build streaks over time. And it's easy because I was just telling a friend last night, like it's easy to lose track of progress day to day, but also do weekly reviews. And when you look back over the last week, it's like, okay, I did get a lot done. So maybe I don't appreciate those things enough. I'm just like a fish in water and that's my reality. So if it looks like that from the outside, it probably goes to like this app habit list. You're like the exact opposite of me. I am. (laughs) I'm the last person to have like any sort of routines or habit trackers set up. Like I kind of roll out of bed and I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I had uh, daily habit, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I had like this exact set of routines that I go through and then I just do whatever I feel like doing. And, <laughs> right. and some of the times it works out really well and some of the times it doesn't. But I think I'm pretty lucky to have basically a role where usually the things that I want to do are the things that I have to do. And I think That's if you're beautiful. not aligned in that way, then it really does help to have some sort of thing to force yourself to do what you need to do. Um, what do you think are your your most important habits that you track? Definitely meditation is like number one, just because I feel like every other habit came from that. Um, It helps lower anxiety. It just gives me perspective for like not to be reactive in conversations um, when something happens. And then if I don't like meditate that day, things get crazy. (laughs) So that's number one. I have a habit called like comfort challenge where I have to do something like new or something that makes me uncomfortable. And it's sort of like if you think of explore and exploit, this is the explore part where it just forces me out of habits in a way. It forces me out of my comfort zone, out of a routine. And a lot of things like that's how I picked up jujitsu. Like it was a comfort challenge to even go in there. And like I remember before I left the house, I'm like, do people get hurt? And like in the forums, they were like, yeah, you get hurt. And I just had to like shut all of that out and go. Um, and it changed my life, you know. So, so many things have come from that. I think those are the like two most important habits. The only habits that I really have are sort of socially motivated habits. So for me, I find it pretty difficult to just sit down and look at a to-do list and be like, because this says this thing, I'm going to do this thing at this time. But it's a lot easier for me to keep obligations. Like if I have something on my calendar with another person, like my brother and I, for example, every day we'll just spend an hour and we'll schedule at the beginning of the day. You know, 7 p.m., we're going to spend an hour and we're going to learn about this topic. And there's no wriggling out of it. It's not like when the time comes, if I don't feel like it, I don't do it. It's like an obligation to another person. And I know that mm-hmm. I'm going to learn about you know, crypto today, or I'm going to learn about, I'm going to read some Amazon shareholder letters or whatever it is that we're doing. And I felt like those are the only ways for me to be consistently productive over time. And looking at a lot of founders who go from working a job like you're working, where they have all these social obligations, they have coworkers and bosses, and they have a family that they need to feed. And suddenly they quit, and they're just kind of off spending in the world. And like, it's hard for me to get things done day to day. I think it's easy for people to underestimate the degree to which like obligations to other people can really be a backbone to you being consistently productive. So I wonder how much of a role that plays in your life. You know, is it all just you by yourself, willing yourself to get up every day and do these kinds of things? Or do you have the sense that you're obligated to others and that you need to produce to get your stuff done? Yeah, I really relate to what you said. I almost feel like like social accountability is too effective where (laughs) sometimes like... I'll stick with things just because like I committed to them, even though like the strategy may have changed or like now there are new options that make more sense. Um, So like I have this thing where it's just like I try to avoid I don't think it's good, but I try to avoid like social accountability just just because I know how effective it is. Yeah, it's almost too effective. But anyway, you've got all these newsletters you're working on. You're doing a lot of them at the same time. And then eventually you hit on trends. And it's apparent to me that it wasn't obvious to you when you first started Trends that this was a standout idea, that it was going to be better than all your other ideas because you were still working on other ideas at the same time. What was going through your head when you wrote the very first Trends newsletter, which I believe was about cloud kitchens? Mm-hmm. 
I was just like happy to explore. It's almost like an excuse to like explore my own curiosity. So I was just happy to get that out of my system. Like I learned a lot doing it. It was nervous. I was nervous, like putting it out there. Um, I think I just like for the first four or five there, I didn't collect email addresses. I would just put them on Twitter. I was nervous, like posting it and putting it out there because the format was different. It was short. Someone recently asked me, like, what assumption has to be true for like Trans VC to work out? And I'm like, it's already true. But the assumption was that people appreciate like shorter content. And that was, you know, it was different. And that turned out to be true. And I'm grateful for that. Um, But a lot of nervousness and also just, I guess, joy around having an excuse now. I have to, you know, put this deliverable out there. Now this is my excuse to go learn something. Why were you nervous? I mean, you'd released so many different products before. It's not like the first thing you put online. You'd in fact tweeted a bunch of stuff and had people subscribing. What about trends made it so much more nerve wracking than the other things you're working on? I don't think this is just me, but like I I still get nervous like before any report goes out. It's just like, how will people receive this? And I also think that's why uh, when you asked about habits, why comfort challenges are so important to me because they sort of conditioned me to like condition that out of me. And even though it's there, like by definition, it has to make me uncomfortable for me to do it and for me to get credit, like for something to be a comfort challenge. But yeah, you just don't know how it's going to be received. And I don't know if it'll come up, but like even the hater section is a way to like hedge against that of like, let me still man everything here. And it just turned out to like be more than that. And uh, people like kind of see it as a source of entertainment, even if they don't care about the topic that week. So yeah, let's talk about the format for one of these trends emails. So you've got them all mm-hmm. online. I can go to like trends.vc slash you know, trends issue 001. I like your naming uh, convention, by the way. <laughs> like your first email is <laughs> number 0001, which I've done with yeah. the podcast as well. And at the beginning of the email, you say, this is the problem, right? Traditional websites will lose in the delivery game unless they optimize, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a bunch of different sections that analyze this whole trend. You say, here are the major players, here are your predictions for what's going to happen in the future. Here are opportunities that maybe other founders and indie hackers can take advantage of. And then you've got your hater section, which is kind of like predicting what people might say against you. Like, you know, Drew, you're stupid. Actually, here's here's the reality. And so you kind of mm-hmm. put that in quotes and then you respond to it. So I like you like you were saying, kind of hedging and making sure that like, hey, you might be nervous about how this is going to be taken. But like you're proving to people that you've thought about it and you're sort of you know, addressing some of these objections in advance, or I think is, which I think is brilliant because the internet could be kind of a, a brutal place. And if you put something mm-hmm. out, like people will kind of thoughtlessly just tear it down. So you're sort of addressing them. And then you've got links for further reading. So people can like kind of look at what I assume is all the research that you did to put together the entire issue. How long did it take you to hit on this format and how much work went into just writing this one email? Yeah, so like that's just the base like format has evolved since then. But um, I don't know, like maybe 30, 20, 30 hours, like went into that report. Um, and as like the formats evolved to, you know, now there's like solution. And sometimes there's like terms. If I feel like we have to define what we're talking about, there's like a key lesson section. There are like trends pro notes, which, you know, week to week go in and out, which are like mini essays. But yeah, I'll say about like 20 to 30 hours went into that report. And the format for that report is just how I think. And as it's evolved, it just came from like conversations that I had with readers of, you know, the solution part came from like a conversation I had with someone. I think those links were just like the title of the page. But eventually I started summarizing links after uh, conversations with readers. Um, And it's just evolved from there. And how did you decide that your first topic would be cloud kitchens? It just been top of mind for so long. Um, like I just needed an excuse to like put the work in and then like organize my thoughts and like put it out there. Cause I feel like I used to just like read and like, you know, learn voraciously, but I feel like the other half of learning doesn't really come. It doesn't come unless you try to like teach it to someone. And I used to like not appreciate the writing or like the writing part of it. Um, it's still like challenging, but I like it. I like it because this is where I learned the other half, like trying to clarify this. I expose my own ignorance in a lot of ways. Like if I can't explain it simply, then I don't understand it. It's cliche, but it's true. Yeah. The best way to learn is to teach another cliche. That's also very (laughs) true. And a lot of people get nervous, just like you did, just like I did when I was launching Indie Hackers, where you're trying to teach people something, where you're trying to say like, hey, I know how this works. Here's my report on it. Because you start Mm -hmm. questioning your own knowledge. Like, well, do I really know how this works? And there are certainly people out there on earth who know way more than me about this. In fact, that's who I'm learning from. So what qualifies me to put this information out there. But you just gotta gotta accept the fact that there's lots of people who know significantly less than you do, especially if you're putting 
20 or 30 hours a week into just researching this. Like most of your subscribers have put zero hours a week into researching mm-hmm. cloud kitchens. And so, you know, it's still going to be useful for them and entertaining for them and educational. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the result after you put 30 hours into researching this? And then I don't know how many hours into writing it up, you know, you tweeted it out, you posted it on your website. What happened? Uh, the people closest to me. So they like, they just reacted. I remember, um, I had the idea for a few months and I was in, um, I'm part of a mastermind called zero to one makers. And I just like, we, we do weekly updates. Our weekly updates were done. And I threw the idea out there of like deep framework based research. And like the room was pretty neutral. There's this guy, Edmund, that was like, you should definitely do that. So that was Friday. The report came out Monday. And what I realized after posting it on Twitter is that no one really understood like what it would look like or what I Mm. meant um, because their reaction, like they were just like, oh, like this is cool, but this isn't what I thought you were explaining. So that was a good feeling. Like it, it felt like it exceeded expectations in a way. And that was that, like for the first four, five, six, like I said, there was no like email collection. So I'm not able to gauge like how many people are interested enough to like opt in a future reports. I just wasn't collecting that big mistake. Yeah. What, what made you decide not to collect it? Cause you launched so many different emails, uh, released like related products in the past. Like I assume you have almost like a miniature playbook for like, here's how you do an email newsletter. Here's how you write. Here's how you research. Yeah. At that time, I wouldn't say I had a playbook. Now I feel like I do to go back to your point of like, I feel like success teaches us in some ways. But then like if I had a playbook, I wouldn't have like not collected emails. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know why I didn't do it. Another mistake, it was like on my personal site. And I remember when I moved it off of my personal site, like I just it, it's hard to like quantify, but like the reactions changed. That's the only way I could put it. Like it started being received differently, like when it was on its own domain. But that's something I would have done earlier if I had like a playbook or knew more about what I was doing at the time, because it was just all failures. It feels like with Trends VC, like something happened that never happened before with any of these projects of like I've closed a full loop. And it's I've, it's it's hard for me to express Okay, so let's keep going through the history then, and, and maybe we'll okay. cover some of like what actually went okay. into this playbook. Uh, yeah. Step one: Eventually, you started collecting email addresses, and as you said, you mm-hmm. put it on your own domain, which I think you know instead of being Drew Riley's email list, now it has its own professional brand, its trends. You also started posting them on Indie Hackers around episode or issue number five or six, because I think your very first post on Indie Hackers, you'd already done a bunch of them. And I was like, oh, what's this? Mm-hmm. Um, what changed once you put an email collection form on there? How many people were signing up and how did you feel about the project once you saw that people actually were going to subscribe? Yeah, it was still slow going at first. Like um, if I go back to the beginning, like maybe the first week there were like seven, seven or eight subscribers. And the next week, maybe there were like 30 or 40. And then it got featured by um, this guy, Michael Gill, who's in our mastermind as well that runs No Code Coffee. And it was the like, it made me the most nervous of like not the product hunt stuff that recently happened, but one week I think it went from like 70 to 400. So from a multiple perspective, I was really nervous to like send that next report out. And then from there, like it would just, you know, keep going up, but it was definitely like slow going at first, even once, you know, a few reports were out and I was collecting emails. Um, it wasn't like super crazy in the beginning. Did you have any sort of like strategy for how you were going to get more people to subscribe to it? Did you have like a Twitter playbook or an SEO playbook? Yeah, from a Twitter perspective, I still feel like like tweet threads are underrated. What I would do is like break the report down and into tweets, like just a big tweet storm. And then I would go back and forth between like one week I would tag people, the next week I wouldn't tag people. And it was actually Rosie from uh, Indie Hackers that told me like, you need to go back to tagging people. And, you know, those are like pretty hit or miss, but that's the thing about tweet storms. Like you can't necessarily, well, I can't predict the success of them, but if you just, you consistently do them, um, some things will hit. And like a week that, you know, would go well, maybe there's like a thousand or 2000 subscribers that would mostly, it seems, come from uh, Twitter. And then, you know, some weeks are more like duds. That was a big, a big thing, a big tactic using tweet storms to grow. And then at some point, you actually started making money from this. So the mm-hmm. first trends emails, maybe you're tweeting about them, maybe your friends and colleagues are tweeting about them, and you're getting subscribers, but you're still making zero dollars. You're still, you know, three years into your mini retirement, and just watch your bank account decline. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that hey, you know, trends should have some sort of price tag, and how did you decide what the business model should be? Yeah, it was the, I think, report number 11, paid newsletters of just seeing so many examples of people do this. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. And even the strategy that I used at first, it just, 
it just failed. Where I, in the previous, in the week leading up to when I was going to try to monetize, I was like, hey, you can pre-order the next report. Here goes the topic. And I think like 102 people viewed it and no one bought it. So that following week, I can't remember whether I charged for the next, but the topic changed. Um, I can't remember whether I charged for that report, but I was basically like, that didn't work out. No one bought. So instead of going like uh, bi-weekly where you're going to get a free report charge, I ended up doing something that people close to me told me to do up until that point where they were like, um, you know, just like break the report down and like make half of it free, make the other half paid. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like the reports were already short, but it's, it ended up working. And I just ended up doing like more research to like keep the length pretty much the same. And that's when I think the work like expanded, but also like that's what allowed it to take off in terms of uh, making money. Why do you think that business model worked better than the sort of, you know, summer free, summer paid model that you experimented with at first and nobody bought? I wish I knew because that was one reason. Like I remember being in Slack. Um, we had the Slack for my mastermind and there were like five people against me where I'm just like, look, like, can you show me any example where someone is like doing this model and is successful? And like, I got no responses. So <laughs> I still don't know anyone that's like following like this model of like you can buy single reports and then, you know, they're like annual subscriptions, but now there's no monthly. I wish I knew. I, d- I don't know why it worked. I mean, I've seen some examples of podcasts and newsletters and things where like you're reading or God, I, f- I wish I remember what show it was. I was listening to the show and it was a great interview and then music mm-hmm. started playing. And they're like, for the rest of this episode, like subscribe here, blah, blah. And I was so mad. I was like, I've ended <laughs> this episode and you're just going to cut me off like this and get, get me to pay. And then I literally just yeah. went online and, and paid because they already like hooked me in and I wanted more mm-hmm. as opposed to, I think sometimes if someone's like, hey, you know, this one's free, but the next one is paid. Like, I don't care about the next one because I haven't gotten absorbed in the story or I haven't like seen how good it could be. So I'm not shocked yeah. that your, your, your new business model where you decided to you know, make half of it free and half of it paid is the one that actually worked. Yeah, I think you're right. And even though it's like not narrative based or, you know, telling a story, there's still this like this open loop that's left open if you don't like, you know, purchase and close it. So I think that's a great point. So at first you basically made issue number, I think 11 or 12, half free, half paid. How many people actually paid for it? A lot. So at that point, like reports were like three bucks, which I think I just, again, like I just came out the gate. I'm like, after coming off like a failure, I'm like, how do I lower the bar of success? And I think like 30 people bought that report that day for $3. And that day, like four or five people were like, how can I just subscribe instead of, you know, buying the reports each week? And I rolled out a way to subscribe and nobody bought that day. Like I just messaged those people back, but nobody bought. And um, I'm saying it because he's made it public, but like somehow Patrick Campbell found this link and he was the first person to subscribe. And I'm glad he was because like I've been following him for at least a year up until that point. So I just like... I was just on cloud nine for like a week after that happened, that he was like the first person to ever subscribe. And again, like I never sent him the link. I don't know how he found it. It may have been like on Twitter, like a thread or something that I was responding to someone else. But um, yeah, 30 people bought it and then uh, rolled out subscriptions that same day. It's a pretty good feeling, huh? Yeah, yeah. Definitely better than the week before. (laughs) So at that point, I mean, I think you were still working on other projects in addition to trends. Like what, what convinced you that like trends was the way to go? And that this is what you wanted to focus on primarily, because I think, you know, I've seen you talk about online how you might shut down other projects and that trends is really Mm -hmm. your focus. What was the turning point there? I probably had the feeling after, like, even though I think I think we're talking about product examples, even though like a lot of people relatively like it had more initial traction than even Trends VC had. But I just felt like I felt like I could do Trends VC longer and like get more compounding in later stages. Mm. Um, and I think that was a big part of that decision where it's just like, what game can I play for longer? And it just felt like Trends VC was it. Yeah. Harry Dry runs um, marketingexamples.com, which is mm-hmm. very similar to your other website slash newsletter product examples. And what's mm-hmm. really cool about those example type things is they're usually stories or they're you know, examples, obviously, of other people succeeding which is really cool and similar to what I did with indie hackers at first, where it's like, okay, spotlight on this entrepreneur. What are they doing that's working for them? But also mm-hmm. kind of hard to monetize because not that many people are really feel like they're getting a ton of like value that they can make money from when they read the story of like one person versus what mm-hmm. you're doing with trends. It's like you're covering entire industries. Like you do a trend on paid newsletters, a trend on lead generation, a trend on gamification. And anyone who's like actually trying 
to build a company in that industry, who's trying to build a business in that industry. Like, that's invaluable information for them. Like you've done so much research and compiled it all into one place. And I think it's just really easy to understand like how someone could take that and make money from it versus, you know, one individual example or one story. Well, it's like, that's interesting and it's intriguing and I want to share it. But mm-hmm. like, am I going to pay for like one story about one company? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way. I know some people, they still ask for like individual deep dives, but that's not as interesting to me as like comparisons, like within an industry. And you may see it a lot, but I even like compare seemingly unrelated verticals to this vertical, like that, that type of comparative analysis is, I just find it more interesting to go back to the fit of, yeah. Yeah. And I think just broadly, this whole sort of model of, of curating information for people is really underrated. I've been talking about this for three or four years. I mean, I was inspired mm-hmm. by Peter Levels who did this with Nomad List. He's like, hey, a lot of people want to travel and it's a ridiculous amount of work to go find information on all the cities on earth and figure out which one's the best to travel to. Like, what if I just did that research for you and then kept it updated and charged for access? Right. Uh, build a community on top of it. Andy Hackers is the same thing. Like, let me do a bunch of research on a bunch of different, you know, founders and companies and put it all together so that you can learn in one place that happened to go everywhere. And trends seems the same to me. If I really wanted to like come up with a business idea or figure out what's going on in an industry, like I don't want to track everything down online. Like I can just go to your trend report, find it all in one place. And like you've actually, you know, taken the time to curate it intelligently with the readers in mind. And so I think just being able to save people a lot of time in that way, mm-hmm. like understanding what people are spending time on and, and saving them time is so underrated. And all these different like curating businesses look different. You know, like they don't yep. you wouldn't guess that like Trends has any relation to indie hackers, has any relation to Nomad List, has any relation to like all these other curating websites, but like they're kind of the same idea over and over again, just for different niches and different problems that they solve. Yeah, I love those, like, again, seemingly unrelated things when you draw, like, you see the through line. Like, that's the type of stuff I enjoy. So, one of the things that you mentioned that is funny because I was really worried about this at the beginning of indie hackers, I was worried. I'm going to run out of people to interview. Like how many mm-hmm. <laughs> software engineer bootstrappers really are there? And after like a, you know, four or five months, I was like, okay, that's silly. It's like, and, and there's more starting to do this every month and then I interview every month. So I'm never going to run out. You with trends, I mean, you've got what, you're up to like 30 different trends that you've identified now. Why weren't you worried that you would run out and, and what's your process like for researching these trends in the first place? Yeah, like I wasn't worried from the beginning that I would run out just because like you asked about cloud kitchens. Why was that the first? Like that was just the tip of the iceberg of I wanted to explore all of these things, but I felt like I needed an excuse to do it. And like the report was the deliverable. And since then, like even with cloud kitchens, there were like trends spun out of that. And it feels like each time like I research one, like three or four more come from that. And I just add it to this list of things to explore in terms of research, it's that same list of, you know, sometimes something is already there and I'll just go add notes. You know, here goes a player I found or here's an interview I listened to where they mentioned this or, you know, here's an opportunity that I just randomly thought about in this space. So by the time that I actually start looking into that trend, I'll like just copy all of this stuff from this report, dump it into like a WordPress document and um start like researching from there. I'll find more resources. Um, so like podcasts, videos, uh, texts, sometimes books. And it's just like intense research for a couple of days. Um, and then a crazy amount of like revising. There are like, I can't remember which report it was recently, but I cut like 13,000 words out just to make it like less than a thousand words. So there's a lot of like work that goes into and like reworking text to make it like super short and simple. That I think that was the riskiest part of like, I don't personally enjoy like extremely like fluffy, like long form content. Um, I didn't know like how many other people uh, saw the world that way. And they just seem to appreciate it, like how readable the reports are. Yeah, it's it's cool because you've just sort of built like a learning machine for yourself. I've talked about this in previous episodes where if you have some sort of activity that's attached to your job, like in order for you to do trends, you literally have to research. Like that's not an mm-hmm. option. There's no option not to research. You can't just like, <laughs> there's no way you could do one of these without researching, right? And so it's not yep. something that you have to be personally motivated to do. It's not something that you need a bunch of tricks to do. It is literally your job. And as a result mm-hmm. of that, you're just going to learn a ridiculous amount of stuff. Uh, and it, it's cool, like, you know, for example, the fact that you decided to start charging for your newsletter after you did a trend on paid newsletters, right? Like that yep. learning for your job helped you actually do your job better and turn this from like a project into an actual business. Has there ever been like a trend that you've uncovered where you're like, oh, I don't want to share this with anyone else, right? This seems like amazing and lucrative and I want to keep this trend to myself. 
It was um, it was within that report you just talked about, about paid newsletters of like the opportunity being so good. I think that was the first and only time that I ever held something back. Maybe a lot of people still don't know about it, um, but it was like confirmed of like there were, I guess, rumors around like how much Ben Thompson was making. And then someone like sent me a screenshot, not of like the revenue, but of how like if you reverse engineer this, this is confirmed. Um, I'm just like, man, like. Do I do I do I say something? So that may have been the first and only time I ever held something back, um, which all kind of leads me to a conversation we had in another post on Indie Hackers about like these subscription media companies versus SaaS companies. And just subscription media is like your total addressable market just is larger, like traditionally, like they're faster to get revenue and they still don't preclude you from going into like SaaS. So there are sort of these like, I don't know, secrets that it feels like some of us are sitting on. Yeah. And I think this whole paid media sort of, especially paid newsletters trend. Uh, I've been talking about it a lot on Indie Hackers. So people who are listening in uh, are surely aware of it by, the, by this point. Maybe they're tired of me talking about it. But I still <laughs> think it's it's underrated. It reminds me of yeah. um, Bitcoin in like 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. I knew so many people who were talking about it and investing in it and predicting like it was going to be the biggest thing. And at that point, I was like, I keep hearing about Bitcoin. It's like, it's just so oversaturated and I didn't even want to get into it because I felt like I was late to the game. You know, mm-hmm. you just like don't want to be starting off behind. I'm like, oh, let me find something new to care about. And it's funny because it's like, well, I'm an early adopter and my friends are early adopters. And so I'm part of this echo chamber where like I think something's played out, but that's because I'm hanging around people who are like onto different trends like five, six years before anyone else even cares. And I wonder yep. if that's the case with, with paid newsletters. Like a lot of us who are indie hackers or who are involved in tech, like we all know what Substack is. And we all know who Ben Thompson is, and we all know about like these paid newsletters. But like, does the average you know citizen of the world really know about this? Like, do we feel like this thing might be oversaturated or might be you know too late to get into? When the reality is, most people don't know about it, and like the the biggest future for it is yet to come. Yeah, you say you like say this every week, sort of related. Um, it's this point I keep making every week about everything being commoditized except for trust and attention. And it's like, I'm just going to keep hammering that point until I feel like more people get it. But that's an advantage that like subscription media, paid media, subscription newsletters have of like now you have this trust, you have this attention. You know, I feel like code is being commoditized with no code um, manufacturing. You have on demand manufacturing where you take like a white label manufacturer, like Printful. Some people have more success. Some people have less success using that business. But it's because like people have less and more trust and, you know, different audiences are like worth different amounts. And it just seems like, like in terms of value extraction, value add, like most of the value is shifting towards like who has the trust, who has the attention. And what do you think is so important about trust and attention when you say that those aren't being commoditized? Like, what does that mean to you? They're scarce. It can't be copied. Right. Like if someone ideas are commoditized, like as soon as it's out there, it's like, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. Or once someone figures like a new form factor out of like to solve this problem, this app needs to work this way. Like that can be easily copied, maybe maybe even with no code or maybe it's even a template that I can find on zero code or something. But trust can't be copied, you know. So I think that's what makes it like scarce. That's what makes it valuable. And trust for you in particular means people knowing who you, Drew, are and liking your style and your personality and the effort that you bring, which can't be copied because nobody else is, is Drew Riley. Yeah. And that's for like a personal brand, but for a corporate brand like Apple or Nike, like, you know, you could make better shoes than Nike, but they'll still have the trust. Like it's, it's it gives them defensibility. Uh, so I think it applies to like personal and corporate brands. So what do you see trends as? I know you said it was on your personal website and now it's like its own brand that doesn't necessarily say Drew Riley. Is that like a corporate brand for you? And if so, like, how do you build trust? Yeah, I think there there is a difference between like Trends VC and me, but I think that like they're very tied and that like it's in my voice and it's hard to separate those. But like if I just go out for drinks, like I might go out for drinks tonight with my friends, like they're not getting like Trends VC Drew, they're just getting Drew Drew. So I think it was Sahil and a few other people where they just like they talk about like, you know, sticking to your talking points on like Twitter and stuff like people aren't interested in like what you had for lunch. And, you know, like you went to the park to like with your kids for a picnic. Cool. They don't care about that. Like talk about crypto, talk about no code. Um, So I sort of like stick to like those aspects of me in Trends VC. But, you know, that. Yeah, that's what the world wants. Like the people want like your talking points. They don't necessarily want all of you in a way. Yeah. Twitter is like one of the more interesting social networks that way, at least tech Twitter, because mm-hmm. everyone on every social network puts forward some sort of front, you know, they're sort of curating their life and it's Instagram. It might be like, here's how much fun I'm having. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, Twitter is kind of like, 
here is my work self, right? Here's all I know about work, et cetera. Here's all I know about like marketing or trends or being an indie hacker. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, you're right. I mean, that's what people want from you. It's kind of you, how you build a following and like you could probably be your full self somewhere else. But if you give people yep. not necessarily what they want or you give them like kind of two different faces of you, like some people will like that, but it's much harder than giving them, you know, the face of you that they actually clearly want because they're subscribing to your newsletter and paying for this every week. So like that's kind of what they want from Drew. Yeah, it's sort of a game that like I play of like I see people with like, you know, they're well known, but just like why aren't they like following on Twitter like bigger? And you look at the the thread or their timeline, it's like super random. And I think that like, you know, they're not sticking to the talking points of, and, you know, credit to them for not playing that game. But, you know, if you want a bigger following, it's sort of a game to be played. Yeah. And for you, I think yeah. your following matters a lot because you do a lot of distribution on Twitter. Like you've got these amazing mm-hmm. Twitter threads that will cover your trends. And so if that's your channel, like you, you probably need to play that game. And if it's not your channel, yeah. maybe you can just post about like making pizza or whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> right, right, right. So how do you think about competition? You know, with this theme of, of trying to avoid being commoditized, trying to build a brand and build trust. You know, how do you think about the fact that like there exists another newsletter called Trends? I think about the fact mm-hmm. that there are other people who might be getting into the paid newsletter games who want to take away some of your market and do kind of what you're doing. Yeah, I don't think about competition. Like I don't think there's any like direct competition in terms of like we all have micro monopolies of like they can't do what I do, I can't do what they do. There's a perception that like this is a zero sum industry and I'm talking about like paid newsletters as a whole, but it's just like you know, Ben Thompson has his voice, his perspective, his point of view. And it's not just like, oh, like he's a business strategy writer. Like, no, he's Ben Thompson. If something happens, like there will be no other Ben Thompson. If something happens, there will be no other Trends VC. And there are people who gravitate towards that. So I I, I just see this whole space of like, you're either selling like news, which is a commodity, you're selling insights, which probably just comes from like this unique perspective that you have, or you're selling signal, which is probably the best position to be in because this thing, like you can say some crazy stuff that doesn't even make sense, but now all of a sudden it's valuable because of who said it. You see that a lot too, but it's a nice position to be in of like just having the value of what you said attached, you know, to the person who said it. And I think that like insights can be copied, um, they can be stolen, but the source can't be stolen. The results can be copied, but the source can't be copied, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I think when I look at trends, part of me wishes you put more of yourself into it. I'm like, I want a picture of Drew <laughs> on this page somewhere. I want to know this is Drew. Because as you get bigger, I think like, you know, one of your big advantages is that you, you've been so active as an indie hacker. You're part of these mastermind groups. You're active on Twitter. You had an amazing product hunt launch in part because everybody knows who you are. But also as you grow, you start to reach new people who don't know who you are. You're like, who is this guy? I have no idea. Like, you don't necessarily have goodwill towards you. And, you, you know, maybe that grows on them over time as they read your stuff. But do you think about injecting more of your personality and who you are as a person into your newsletter? Or do you want the content to just sort of speak for itself? Yeah, I just took a note down, as you said, that to like think about that more. It's not something that I've thought about a lot. I remember one week I removed the hater section and people were like, that's where your personality came out. So I, I think at this point, I know that people appreciate that. It's just about like, I guess, how to do it more. And um, something else I think about a lot is like ethics and objectivity, where even though like the hater section may seem sassy, like sometimes like I do try my best to be like objective. And you know, that's how, why I have to be really careful about like how I approach if I want a fund of how to do a fund, if I'm investing in the same companies I'm writing about. So I don't, I don't want it to come out in a way of like just being like too biased or anything. But um, yeah, it's something I'm thinking about, especially since you said it. So what are your, your favorite trends? We've talked about like, you know, the trends that were the most impactful to you, the ones you wanted to keep kind of secret because you realized it was such a lucrative opportunity. You've done mm-hmm. 30 trends now. Which ones do you think are like the most promising? Which ones were your favorite to research and write about? My favorite was probably Startup Studios because I don't know for how long, but like maybe 10 years like leading up to that report, I wanted a startup studio just because it sounds like this is just my idea generator. I just get like my, my science lab. I just get to, try, you know, experiment with all of this stuff. And again, like for an entire week being surrounded with all of these examples, all of these stories, all of these interviews, you're just like, oh, like these things are spun out. Um, and there's like less com- compounding than say like an Amazon or something. And it just became like less appealing to me. But in a way, there are like elements of a startup studio within Trends VC where I'm able to like, you know, deal in like a completely new vertical each week. Um, and that's enough. But they're still like compounding between audience and, you know, 
I'm carrying people from like week to week, you know, some people drop off, but more people come each week. So there are elements of that. So startup studios, paid newsletters, of course, just because that's when I realized that like, you know, this could possibly work like this could be a way to make money and not have to go back to work for the man. I guess the first one, like Cloud Kitchens, just because like that was getting out there, that was stepping out there. Um, And you asked like why it made me nervous. But the reaction after that, like, you know, like number two made me less nervous than number one and three and so on. I'm probably forgetting a lot. But I think those are the major points. Startup Studios is really interesting because it is like it just seems fun. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what company I'm going to work on. So what if I made a company to just work on a bunch of different companies? That would be cool. And they're not often that successful. Not that other companies are super successful all the time either. Like the hit rate Mm -hmm. for many companies in the Niagara's is pretty low. But I think there is really something to focus. Like like you've been talking about compounding, right? If you have one newsletter and one subscriber base and it gets bigger every week, like that's so much easier and more successful than having a bunch of small things that end up not amounting to very much. And to go back to Amazon, it's interesting because I talked about like Trends VC being sort of my outlet of like my startup studio in a way. But like I once heard Amazon described as like the company that generates companies. So it's like they still get to like, you know, reuse their customer base in a way or like remarket to them. But they're still like, you know, spinning up AWS and then even within AWS, other like services. So it's like a fractal in some ways, but they're getting more compounding than, say, like a D2C startup studio that's going to like spin this out, find an EIR to like run it and, you know, do this other stuff. I think a lot of that has to do with timing, right? It's like not like Amazon came out of the gate and in year number one, they're like, we're going to do 50 different things. Like they built this extremely powerful e-commerce platform, got a ton of mindshare, like customers love them, had a ton of revenue, and then they use that to sort of spin off these alternative businesses like AWS off the back of their infrastructure. And we've seen so many other bigger companies do the same thing. So I worry when uh, Andy Hackers, you know, two months into a project, start doing 15 different things. <laughs> and it's like, we well, don't have an advantage to build on. You don't have a giant mailing list to build on, etc. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. So at some point, your revenue sort of hockey sticked with with trends.vc. I mean, you said you're making over $20,000 last month. What are some of the biggest changes that you've made to help your revenue grow so quickly over just the last few months? Because that's an insane number. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, you know, a lot of it came from Product Hunt. And even before Product Hunt, there was like, you know, consistent growth in terms of like raw subscriber numbers of like new daily signups. And it sounds silly in retrospect, but I didn't know if this part would work of each week, like a report goes out and there's like a prompt to upgrade. So I I still don't have a funnel built in where there's like an automated sequence or anything like that. But this sort of acts as that funnel of like each week table stakes report has to go out and some percentage of the audience is going to convert. So by growing that like base number, like the percentage of people that converted just goes up. Um, but I don't have any like crazy conversion hacks or anything yet. I, I'm actually looking at that, like how to increase the conversion rate. But it's just like raw numbers at this point. So let's talk about some of those numbers. You had one of the more successful product hunt launches that I've ever seen. You launched in August. I think you're the number one product hunt product in all of August, which is not easy to mm-hmm. do nowadays. Product hunt is so big. Why did that go so well? I think it was just the like stored goodwill for a lot of people. They're just like, you know, I don't feel the need to upgrade because I get so much for free. And a lot of my friends are like, you give too much away from free. But I think it's sort of like that social capital, like some other type of capital that isn't money was stored up. And that when you give people like a chance to support you, all of that, not all of that, but some of that gets released and they just like show as much support, like the comments more than like the day product of the day, product of the week, product of the month, just the comments and seeing like, you know, I started this company after this report was released or like, just everything that like people were saying, like, I just go back to that and read it like whenever I'm having a bad day or whatever. But I think it was all of that like stored goodwill in a way of giving away so much for free that just came out in the launch. It's kind of the genius, I think, of launching late. A lot of people build something new. They're like, I got to launch on day one. Everyone needs to see this. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. do you really want to blast out your thing to anyone and everyone like before you've iterated on it? Before you mm-hmm. built up any goodwill, before you know if it works, before you have email capture, before you're charging money, like shouldn't you try to grow things organically first? And then once you yep. know things are going well, then launched. And I don't know if this is intentional or not for you and trends, but like that's exactly what you did, right? By the time you launched our product hunt, you already knew you'd hit on a good formula. You'd already iterated on it a bunch and improved the format. You already had like a bunch of trends emails that people could see in the past. 
and you'd already built up a bunch of goodwill by giving away stuff for free. Yeah, I wish I could say that like that was some like grand plan that I had, but it was really just being nervous <laughs> to like launch before that point. Um, and I don't know like what I would advise people to do because the longer that I went without a launch, the higher my expectations went of like this thing better work because I waited mm-hmm. this long. So yeah, that that is an advantage. Um, I wish I would be able to say like it's intentional, but I do think that at least for people close to me, it's going to like change the way they go about things and sort of like like opening their product in more of like a concentric circle instead of like product hunt being like the first stop to like launching something. To never be your first stop. I don't think it's ever great to be your first stop. Because I mean, it's it's kind of like the, uh, it's like the easy sort of like, where should I launch Hacker News product hunt kind of way to do things, right? It's like mm-hmm. when you don't really have a growth strategy, when you're not sure how you can repeatably get more customers, like that's often the first answer that comes to mind. And so I think yep. it should probably be the last thing that you do. Because not only anything's really worth working on if you don't have some way to repeatably get customers. And so like if exactly. that's the real challenge, like you should probably front load that and figure that out. And only then, you know, spend your time trying to blast it out to everybody once you've confirmed, like, hey, there is a repeatable way to keep getting people in the door for this particular thing I'm working on. Yeah. That's actually what I'm writing about this week of like audience first products. You know, instead of going to like a hacker news or a product hunt, having like an audience that you've been forced to understand and how knowing how to reach them building that up, you know, instead of going for this launch with this hype hangover that's eventually going to happen. Yeah, tell us about that. What does it mean to have an audience first product? (laughs) Yeah, I just think of it as like, you know, you're building trust with your audience before you even have a product. So that might come in the form of like a blog, a newsletter, a podcast, a personal brand, having that ready before you have a product ready. You understand, you know, what problems, what struggles they have. You have people willing to give you feedback. You know, they may be more like generous and like more lenient in terms of like if your product doesn't work, even if they don't need the product, they may be willing to help you spread the word. Like to go back to having goodwill stored, you're forced to deliver value to build an audience. You're also forced to understand your future customers, you know, your audience through this. So it's like a forcing function in a way. And I think what's interesting about this audience first product idea is that you can actually do both at the same time. You can build something that generates an audience and you can build something that generates revenue. I've seen that a lot. And they can both be the exact same thing. Like one doesn't have to necessarily come before the other. And you've done this with Trends, right? Trends is just one product. It's one newsletter. And early on, it helped you build an audience and now it's making you tens of thousands of dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing with Indie Hackers. It was a collection of interviews. It was a blog and it was free. And my Twitter audience went from like 400 people to tens of thousands. And then later on, I added like sponsorships, but not that much later. I think three weeks after I launched it, I was making money from it. So you don't necessarily have to do two different things. And I'm curious in your report, how many of these companies are going to be doing like one audience building and revenue generating product? I think you made a great point. Like um, I heard a story from Dan Shipper of like super organizers was supposed to just be his way to build an audience before he released productivity software. And he was just like, no, like I can just turn this into a paid subscription. That's his way to monetize. Who knows if he continues walking down that path and like release, you know, take the software route. But, you know, to your point, like that's a great route to take. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between something that builds an audience that people can charge money for and something that builds an audience that like is forever going to be free, but maybe just results in, in more people following you or subscribing? I'm not sure what's the answer to that because like my mind goes to whether, you know, it's like utility based or education based, but I can find examples of both working. It sort of reminds me of the conversation around like newsletter fatigue right now of I feel like like that's mostly BS. It just forces quality up and it probably just comes down to quality, whether it's about utility or entertainment. People have to get like enough value out of it to justify, um, you know, justify charging. Yeah. And that's what I like about trends. I mean, it's pure value, right? Like I can use it. I could use trends to actually improve indie hackers as a business. Like what should indie hackers be writing about? Who should I be interviewing? Well, instead of doing a ton of research myself, I could just read trends <laughs> and Drew's going to tell me. And I think if you have that value for people who are actually engaged in, in industries that make money, you know, if you're teaching people like, I don't know, like how to be better foodies. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's not that much money in like eating food. But there is a lot of money in like building businesses and, and educating people around that. So I like what you've done. And it's pretty inspiring to see your revenue growth. So as is a tradition here, I always ask, what's your advice for other indie hackers who are in the position that you were in just six months ago, really, not making any money, <laughs> trying to figure out which idea is going to work? Uh, what do you think they should take away from your story? I'll just say try to find something that you can stick with uh, for a while. 
yes, it matters. Like the market needs to have what you have to offer. But I think that like V0 version zero almost never survives. And you have to be willing to like stick it out through pivots, through iterations. And that's hard to do if you just don't love what you're working on. Love what you're working on. Stick it out through pivots and iterations. Drew Riley, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Cortland. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>